as now we're looking to the Lord in prayer. And Father, as we do so again, our hearts go out to the various families that have experienced loss. Father, as we're exploring your word this morning, we see that it is significant in the way in which it addresses all the issues of life. And we're thankful, Father, for the way in which you work, you guide, you direct. Now we're going to find ourselves thinking about other people. Some are going to be thinking about their relationships at a very intimate level. Others are going to be looking at the various dynamics at the, in the workplace, in the hospitals, the clinics, the schools, the factories, the corporate settings, the wide-ranging settings in which we find ourselves positioned day in, day out, and you know what's there. We're going to be thinking about family members. and Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a grandchild, maybe it's a spouse or a relative of some sort. That as we unpack these verses, we're going to be asking the tough questions as to how do I address these needs. So we're exploring something that deals with the realm of counseling, biblical counseling. We want to be wise in the way we do this, reflectively and directively simultaneously, to meet the needs, because as we gather today, we're to be scattered through the week to take your truth and apply them in the various settings you put us in. So, Father, we're going to get our marching orders now. You're going to lay out the blueprint for the week. We're going to be able to see what the checklist entails. So, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As we come again now, Father, to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I had just arrived from Pennsylvania, and I had my papers to submit in my doctoral program. And as I was walking across the campus, I heard a voice off in the distance that seemed so incredibly familiar calling out my name. And I turned and I looked, and uh, somebody I would have not expected whatsoever to be on that campus. Her name was Susan. When I knew her in medical school, she was a hard and secularist, atheistic in tendencies. And she went out of her way to put her arguments forward in the classroom. And yet here she was on an evangelical campus, Susan, I say, what are you doing here? And she said, Gary, what are you doing here? I thought you'd be out in Massachusetts practicing medicine and going to Red Sox games. And I laughed and I said, well, Susan, I'm a pastor. Boy, did her jaw drop. And I said, and Susan, what brings you here? And she said, Gary, I came to know Christ through the Christian Medical Dental Association. And uh, I'm here to take a bioethics course under Dr. John Kilner. I said, what's your, what's your focus? She said, well, I followed through. I'm a psychiatrist. And my, my focus is obsessions, addictions, and how to reorient people's thought processes. I said, Susan, 
I'm about to head into a course that's taught by Dr. Neil Anderson in the next few moments. He's written the books, The Bondage Breaker, Victory Over Darkness. You ever read them? She said, no, new Christian. And I said, it's going to deal with the subject of strongholds. It's found in 2 Corinthians. And I said, hey, when you get a break between your seminars, come on over, sit down near, and take in what Dr. Anderson has to say. We've been corresponding, and I think you're going to find this subject interesting because I have to wonder whether or not what you're dealing with in your psychiatric practice might in some way have something to do with what you're going to find in, in this study of strongholds. And she dropped in and she took incredible notes. What I want to do with you is to begin to ponder this subject and ask ourselves some questions. If somewhere along the way in our culture, might we in fact be addressing symptoms when the reality is we need to be addressing the causes behind the symptoms? Spiritual strongholds. And you say, well, Gary, what is a spiritual stronghold? I'm going to put an answer to that question on the screen before we delve into the text, because here's how we would define it. A spiritual stronghold is a habitual thought process. It's habitual. It's contrary to God's will. It's hardened over time. It shapes both attitudes and actions. Now, I have to wonder when that young child appears on Wednesday night in Awana and begins to act out. And the natural tendency is to address the behavior as to whether or not we're still dealing there with addressing symptoms. And I'm asking myself the question, could it be that there's a stronghold issue? Maybe that's been transmitted from generation to generation. Maybe it's learned behavior from parents, grandparents, and so on. But there's this habitual, in mind this now, thought process. It's contrary to God's will. It's been hardened over time, maybe because of pain, hurt, loss, anger, conflicted relationships. But there's a hardening that's occurred. And what happens is it shapes not only the attitudes of that person, but out of the attitudes then come the actions that flow. Or maybe it's that grown child on their own, and all of a sudden they've turned in a different direction than the way in which they were raised. Or maybe it's that individual in a conflicted relationship, and you're wondering well, if I just simply do A, B, and C, I can fix this relationship, when in reality you're treating symptoms. And what really needs to be addressed is the stronghold that is possessing the mind. Because I'm not talking now about hardware, the brain. I'm talking about software, the mind, the thought processes involved. So what I want to do with you now is we're going to look at three significant needs found in these verses that have to do with how do we go about addressing strongholds and then begin to develop our thinking as to the way in which we can be more effective in this culture to minister to others at their point of need. So let's delve in. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 to start with. This is more of a, a counseling time this morning. 
where we're going to think things through and then relate them to wherever you're at and whoever you are in contact with. But number one, when addressing spiritual strongholds, note first of all with me the appeal that we need to make. Notice how Paul begins at this point. He says, I, Paul, myself. Notice that he's not pulling rank here and saying, I, the Apostle Paul. No, he's demonstrating an incredible sense of humility. He wants to get at their level. He wants a sense of connectedness with them. This is a relational dynamic he's now bringing to the forefront. Now, I say this because this is very critical. Chapters 1 through 7 deal, as we have mentioned in prior weeks, with physical hardships. Where is God in the midst of the hardships? Chapters 8 and 9 deal with financial challenges, financial hardships. Where is God in the midst of those? But now beginning in chapter 10 through 13, we are dealing with oppositional hardships, adversarial hardships. And now in that Corinthian church, there are adversaries. They are people who are going to bring conflict into the dynamics, which the evil one will do, you see, to disrupt the harmony of the well-being of God's people. You ever experienced that? He'll do that in the family. He'll do that in the church. He will do that in the nation. He'll do that in the judiciary. He will do that in the world. And here we find the incredible connectedness of humility as the Apostle Paul drops the Apostle in front of his name and simply says, I Paul, myself, you see how personally involved he is? Now, are you personally involved in something that involves a conflicted dynamic relationally at this moment, or maybe a conflicted person? I, Paul, myself, threefold personal words, entreat you. He doesn't simply say, I entreat you. I, Paul, Myself, entreat you. The word entreat carries with the idea you're making an appeal now. You're making an appeal to their well-being, to their mindset, their thought processes. In other words, you want them to start thinking about what might be behind the very issues that are, that are creating such conflict internally, externally, relationally. And then he goes on. He doesn't say by the meekness and gentleness of yours truly. Where does he go? He goes where you and I need to go. He goes to Jesus. Jesus, the one who died in our place for our sins. And notice the twofold distinctives that he draws out with regard to what he admires at this moment about Jesus. He speaks of his meekness and he speaks of his gentleness. What interests me about the word meekness is that it has nothing to do with the concept of weakness. Moses was described as a meek man. Moses got so ticked off he killed an Egyptian. Jesus was described as meek. Yet Jesus would overturn the money changers' tables in the temple when they were abusing the house of the Lord. So then, what do we mean then when he describes Christ this way? Meekness carries with it the idea of power under control. 
If you're going to be dealing with a conflicted person or conflicted relationships, you're going to have to make absolutely certain emotionally, mentally, physically, you're under control, not out of control. And so now, everything about Jesus Christ was under control. He came to do the will of the Father. If you're going to start addressing the conflictedness of relationships or the conflicted nature of the individual, you start with the dual distinctives of Jesus Christ, not saying, well, this is just the way I was raised or my own personality traits. No, check. Check yourself against Jesus. Check yourself in relationship to Jesus and ask now, what is it about Jesus' distinctives that would allow God the Father to send God the Son into this most conflicted of all settings, this world, sinful as it is, and then die in a cross for our sins and be raised to validate his work to address the ultimate conflict, the conflict between humanity, sinful, and God, sinless, you see. So now he's very focused, isn't he? Very focused upon Jesus Christ, as should you and as should I, if we find ourselves in conflicted matters, adversarial, oppositional. I, who am humble, when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, exclamation point. Why on earth does he say that? You have to understand that there are adversaries. There are opponents in the Corinthian church at this point who came to distort the teaching of the apostle Paul, came to uproot everything that he had planted. And now he is in essence saying, this is how they view me that I can be bold when I'm at a distance, but up close I'm rather timid. Well, the exclamation point gives it away. He's in essence challenging their statements, their assumptions, their presumptions at this point, simply because they've confused meekness with weakness. And what he wants to demonstrate at the onset is that biblical authority and personal humility need to be connected to one another if you're going to be a high-impact person in the various settings God places you in for the glory of God. Humility. I thought about that when I was recalling the story of President Lincoln. and He was going to the front to inspect the Union defenses, and the task of piloting him fell on this young man by the name of Oliver Window Holmes. Some of us have heard of him. Holmes was to guide him around the front. And Holmes pointed out the enemy. The president stood up to look, and he was wearing that typical high plug hat of his, incredible target. And then, as the gunnery began to go off, the young officer dragged him under cover, the president. Years later, Holmes was being interviewed about the most memorable experiences of his life. And he remembered to his horror that he had muttered to the President of the United States, Get down, you fool. He was relieved, he said, when the down to earth President came to him before returning to the Capitol. 
Goodbye, Captain Holmes, he said. I'm glad to see you know how to talk to a civilian. Unquote. Humility in the face of conflict. Recognizing that there are going to be times where things are said that ought not be said. Done dramatically, publicly, in ways perhaps where perhaps a different approach could have been used. But nonetheless, when you allow for your humility to come under God's authority, then the dual distinctives that are used here to describe Jesus Christ begin to penetrate who we are and what we do and how we function in the midst of the conflictedness of opposition. And so the Apostle Paul now begins to draw this out for us, and he's showing us where to begin in the appeal. Now you're up to verse 2 if you're going to be dealing with the stronghold issues of life. And so now in verse 2 he goes on to say, I beg of you. He doesn't say I commend you, though he could pull rank. But notice he has not demonstrated that sense of as an apostle I'm commanding you, but rather as a fellow believer I'm begging of you. And notice the wording. When I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence. As I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And notice that he uses the word some. In other words, he's not saying it's not the sum total of this church that's, that's, that's walking away from God. It's not the sum total of the church that's producing the conflict. Rather, what we're going to have to do is to be able to target those individuals that are bringing a sense of conflictedness into the fellowship and begin to ask the question, why? Now, as a parent, you might have to ask that same question. If there's a sense of conflictedness that has been brought into the overall family dynamic, the question is why? And I'm going to pose this question now. We'll continue to address it. Could it be that that person has got stronghold issues within the mind that are going to have to be addressed, and you're going to have to be able to do it wisely, faithfully, and biblically in a way that's honoring to God and meets the ultimate issues so that you're not merely treating symptoms, but rather you're addressing true issues, causes. So he's saying, now I beg you, not I command you. And notice he uses the word some. He's not saying it's all of them. But there are some who are speaking this way, talking this way, and these, this is the sort of thing he's thinking I need to address. And I've got to do it in a way that you realize that I'm coming to you in such a manner you need to understand I want to be humble. I want to be authentic. I want to minister where you're at. This is who I am. I'm not a phony. When Admiral Nimitz and General MacArthur were fishing together, there's a sudden squall and the bull capsized, and these fighting men, um, they were out in the water. And when they reached the boat, the Admiral cautioned, Now, Mac, don't tell anybody, but I don't know how to swim said the Admiral. Don't worry, MacArthur replied. I'd hate to have my men find out I can't walk on water. Quote, unquote. Well, what we find here 
is humility. And what we find here is reality. And what we find here is authenticity. And if you're going to address strongholds in the family, if you're going to address strongholds in the community, if you're going to address strongholds in this nation, we need humility. We need this sense of reality. And when we begin to function this way, we're going to be able to function and minister effectively in a manner that honors God. So you start with the appeal. He's not pulling rank. When addressing spiritual strongholds, you know, first of all with me, the appeal that we need to make in verses 1 and 2. But here it comes. Second of all, when addressing spiritual strongholds, note the weapons that we need to use. And the weapons we need to use, he begins to think about, reflect upon in verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so in verse 3, you've got something to begin to think about. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, if this is a spiritual stronghold, you can't use a fleshly means to address a spiritual matter. It was break time. And Susan, psychiatrist, approaches me and says, Gary, I'm thinking. And whether or not a lot of what I'm having to address in reality are spiritual dynamics in the mind of the person. We carry on the dialogue during break, but then we've got to get back into the class. Break time's over, you see. But what you and I have to do in our conflicted relationships is to start asking, is my natural tendency to meet a spiritual need by using a fleshly means? Fleshly arguments? Fleshly attitudes? Ways in which the world might operate, but not necessarily the way in which God would want me to operate. How do I do this in a manner that truly penetrates the heart, the mind, and the soul? Because I can't wage war according to the flesh. Well, you're asking now the tough questions. The words waging war carry with it the idea of conducting a military campaign. Now, when Paul was positioned in Corinth as a tent maker, he would have been making tents for soldiers who would have been milling about on the streets of Corinth. He would have understood the whole strategy of military campaigns conducted by the Roman forces. But what he's now doing is that he is connecting this to the way in which you and I are to address strongholds within the heart, the mind of an individual who seems so incredibly conflicted and their internal conflict produces external conflict in the family, in the church, in the community, in the nation, and on and on. Now you're beginning to ask yourself, when I'm dealing with this person, am I just simply dealing with symptoms or am I getting at the real issue of the hour? that there's a stronghold issue at stake here. Well, you're asking good questions. And you've got to begin to ponder the significance of what we have here as he goes on into verse 4, and he begins to say, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
Notice that in verse 4, in your counseling, in your involvement, in your conversations, you've got to ask, now, what weaponry is God calling upon me to use in a way that will resolve this issue? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And I thought about that when I came across this article written by Clarence Hall, a World War II correspondent. It applies immediately to what you see here in that word weapons that appears on the screen. Quote, I can never think of the boons and benefits that the Bible invariably brings without thinking of a small village in Okinawa. Thirty years before, an American missionary en route to Japan had stopped there just long enough to lead two people to saving Christ, Shoshea and his brother Mahjong. He left a Bible with them and then passed on. For thirty years, they had no contact with any other Christian missionary, but they made the Bible come alive. They taught the other villagers until every man, woman, child had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Shoshiah became the headman of the village, Monjon the chief teacher. In the school, the Bible was read daily. Precepts of the Bible were law in the village. In those 30 years, they developed a Christian democracy in its purest form. When the American army then came across the island, an advanced patrol swept upon this little village compound Guns leveled, ready to go. And the two old men stepped forth, bowed low, began to speak, and an interpreter explained that the old men were welcoming the Americans as fellow Christians. Well, the flabbergasted GIs sent for their chaplain, and he came with officers of the intelligence service. They were wondering if they were walking into a trap. They toured the village. They were astounded at the spotlessly clean homes and streets. And the quiet nature of the inhabitants where no conflict was to be found. The other Okinawan villages they had seen were filthy. The people were ignorant, conflicted. Later, he said, I strolled through the village with a tough army sergeant. Get this. Get this. He said, I can't figure this thing out. This kind of people coming from a Bible and a couple of old guys who just want to be like Jesus. He paused, looked at me and said, maybe we've been using the wrong kind of weapons to make the world over. Quote, unquote. Susan, consider the weaponry. Ask the tough questions. Are you treating symptoms? Or are you addressing strongholds? Maybe you are. We praise God for that. But not everything is a hardware issue. Some things are software issues. Not everything is a matter of addressing the brain. It could be that you need to be addressing the mind. 
And how do we go about reprogramming that mind anyways? Well, now, from the technological back to the military analogies, the weapons, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Notice that it is not human power. It's divine power. And the word power comes from the Greek word that we get the word dynamite from. Dunamis, you see. Now you tie that word meek earlier, which means power under control, and link it now to this matter of the divine power when you're utilizing God's word. And now a person who's dealing with eternal dynamite can't be out of control. When you and I, through the working of the Holy Spirit, are under control, we have the opportunity to utilize what God has provided for us to minister at deeper levels than secularism may not fully comprehend. Where everything is viewed as simply of the flesh, and people can't distinguish the brain from the mind, can't distinguish the spiritual from the physical, and so on and so forth, but the Christian can. You're drawing distinctions now in your own counseling of individuals. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine dunamis power to destroy strongholds. Now let me get to the word stronghold and listen to what a historian tells us about strongholds in the day of the Apostle Paul. Each city of the first century was constructed with a surrounding wall, like the walls of Jericho, you see, for protection against animals and enemies. Within that wall were towers and buildings, which were taller than the wall. When the enemy approached and the city was required to defend itself, strategists would climb to these high, lofty places known as strongholds, and shout the orders that would coordinate the soldiers at ground level. For a city to be conquered, the offensive forces would have had to penetrate the wall and take control of those towers, those strongholds, the strategists and the commanding generals. Now this is what the Apostle Paul is now doing at this point for you. He's saying that this is not a playground, this world we're in. This is a battleground. And the evil one has a military strategy that addresses the mind. These are not merely mind games. This is the battle for the mind. And now what you and I have to do is that what the evil one attempts to do is to build strongholds within the mindset of that individual. And they might symptomatically demonstrate conflictedness outwardly because of the fact that the evil one has established a stronghold inwardly. And now they've got this conflicted mindset where maybe the soul has not been completely conquered by the evil one, but nonetheless he has built a stronghold, and that stronghold is commanding, shouting, directing, so to speak, the rest of the mind as to what to do, what to say, how to think, where to go, and what relationships should and should not be about. These are stronghold issues. And he's saying when the evil one constructs such a stronghold, 
What you and I have to do is to recognize that biblically there is this divine power to destroy strongholds. And I thought about that when I came across an article years ago describing Operation Desert Storm. Get this. During Operation Desert Storm, the Iraqi war machine was overwhelmed by the coalition forces. The ability to strike strategic targets with never-seen-before accuracy. Unknown to the Iraqis, the Allied Supreme Command had dropped special operations forces deep behind enemy lines. These men provided bombing coordinates for military targets and first-hand reports on the effectiveness of subsequent bombing missions. Keep listening. To avoid unintended targets, unintended targets, pinpoint bombing was required. A soldier from the SOF unit standing on the ground would request an aircraft high overhead to drop a laser-guided missile. Using a handheld laser, the soldier would point at the target. The missile would hone in on the soldier's target in order to hit the stronghold. And when I saw that, I understood what the Apostle Paul was saying. And what we need to do in this conflicted world is to understand that when that person is showing bad behavior, say on a Wednesday night, or in the family, or in the nation, or globally, it could very well be that what we are dealing with now is a software issue, not hardware. The matter of the mind, where we're dealing with such things where there's this habitual thought process. It's running contrary to God's will. It has been hardened over time. Some nations have been hardened generationally over time to think a certain way, but so have individuals that we might know personally. And it shapes both attitude and actions. And if you become exasperated with the behavior, could it be that behind the behavior is a stronghold issue that has been established within the mindset that is going to have to be removed in order for that, that person to function wholly in a healthy way, in a God-honoring, pleasing manner in this fallen world we find ourselves in? This is what we're dealing with here, the battle of the mind. So now, when addressing spiritual strongholds, note first of all the appeal we need to make in verses 1 and 2. Second of all, the weapons we need to use in verses 3 and 4. This is counseling stuff we're doing this morning. But now thirdly, the purpose we need to establish. Why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing if you're helping that person? What's my purpose in addressing this issue? Is my purpose merely to modify behavior? And what if this behavior has been so been so hardened over time that they just simply recycle the same old thing day in, day out. And they operate one way publicly and another way privately. What do I do? Notice in verse 5 now, he says, we destroy 
arguments. This was a very important word to the Apostle Paul. He had been ministering in Athens since we saw in Acts 17. And in Athens, what they love in the give and the take is this intellectual reasoning. That is the very word that he's addressing at this point. There are some that had entered the Corinthian church, and what they were doing at this point was not addressing the issues, but raising the conflict level. We destroy arguments. Now look for where the arguments are in the relational fabric of your life. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now if you look very carefully at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following, one of the declines of a culture and the decline of an individual is suppressing the knowledge of God. So they don't have to deal with God's word, don't have to deal with God's will, don't deal with God's son, Jesus, who died in our place for our sins. It's a means of suppressing truth so that they can function with a sense of a mindset intact in this fallen world. But the suppressed truth keeps percolating. Coming back up to the surface, you see. And that person then becomes continuously conflicted because they're doing what they know they shouldn't be doing. They're thinking what they know they ought not be thinking, but it's still happening. You got something to say. Because you're addressing strongholds. You're not merely addressing symptoms. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and he continues militarily with his thought process and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There's your purpose statement. You want this person who is so conflicted to come into a right relationship with God, saved by grace through faith that as a result, they're living a life in obedience to Christ, not driven by the whims of personal preference human emotion, or personal desires. We want them to get healthy. So then in verse 6, he now looks at those that he referred to in verse 2, some of them, not everybody in Corinth church, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What he wants is healthy obedience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In my files, I had this. In the North Pacific lies the little island of Iwo Jima. Its dry surface of volcanic ash has been likened to a landscape on the moon. For this tiny but vital piece of land, we paid the price of some 21,000 casualties in our war with Japan. For the men who took it, It was never a question of a feeling of adequacy or inadequacy, courage or a lack thereof. They took it in obedience to a command. And when you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, he is our Savior and he is our Lord. And so his commands become part of our thought processes. And when the strongholds have been demolished, 
And the soil now has been returned holistically and totally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's peace in the land of that mind. There's peace in the relationships we find. Everything under the Lordship of Jesus. How was the lecture, Susan? Incredible, she says. I'm buying that book, both of them. Bondage Breaker, Victory Over Darkness. I want to think about some of this. Strongholds, she says. It's going to shape the way I do my psychiatry. And for us, it shapes the way we go about ministering for the glory of God. A little counseling this morning. Let's stand together. We need to understand we live in a world of both hardware and software, not one to the exclusion of the other. We need to understand we're dealing with both brain and mind, not one to the exclusion of the other. Keep us from overlooking the fact that sometimes behavioral issues are really spiritual-caused effects. That conflicted conversations and harsh comments might very well be driven by stronghold issues that need to be addressed. And before we become overly judgmental, before we become so reactionary that our own emotions kick in and we lose that sense of power under control and then have no means to handle the divine dunamis power that comes through your word. Give us clarity of thought, wisdom when we enter into the conflictedness of life. To know we're dealing most likely with stronghold matters day in, day out. Just where are they? And then begin to address them biblically and wisely and bring honor and glory to your name so that people come to saving faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And there's peace. There's peace in the land. And for this, we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.